This is Sit Rap on BFBS. This week, keeping secrets secret. Should we all be concerned about the nine-hour questioning of David Miranda? Also a bigger threat than terrorism, feeling the heat of climate change. It's an issue we have to face, along with all the other threats and challenges that we face to uh, economic prosperity, uh, growth and, and our national security. And what's on your reading list this summer? We suggest some military page-turners. Hello, I'm James Hurst in for Kate Chabot. Questions this week are being asked about whether police correctly applied the rules when using anti-terror laws to detain the partner of Guardian journalist Glenn Greenwald, who's covered stories based on leaks by Edward Snowden. David Miranda was held for nine hours at Heathrow Airport on Sunday and is challenging the legality of his detention. He was held under Schedule 7 of the Terrorism Act 2000 and had his property seized. They keep saying that the entire day to me that I have to cooperate with them. If I don't give the, the, those informations to them, they can help me and take me to the jail. They keep saying that the entire day. They're threatening me. So I, I have to give them that unless I was going to jail. I have to cooperate with them. They ask about what was my trip to Berlin. They ask my relationship with Laura. Ask to her address. Ask my address. Ask my relationship with Glenn. Ask my relationship in the NSA stories. Ask about my families and my friends. Ask about the politics of my country. All types of questions. Well, with us this week, Professor Paul Rogers, who lectures on international security at the University of Bradford, and as always, our own defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Uh, Professor Rogers, can I start with you? Uh, people have expressed shock, outrage that this has happened. Uh, should people be surprised by it, though? If you look at it in sort of broad history, probably not. Uh, there have been many instances in recent decades where people who in one way or another would be described as whistleblowers um, were really treated very toughly by the prevailing authorities. Uh, you go right back to the revelations about the Vietnam War in the United States many years ago, the so-called ABC trials in London about 30 years ago, and many other examples. So you do tend to find that authorities react very strongly to these kinds of episodes where what is meant to be relatively secret information gets out into the public domain. And I think particularly where that is actually embarrassing to political authorities, uh, you find that people come down even harder. So in historical perspective, it's not a surprise, but it certainly caused a great deal of concern uh, over the last two or three days. Uh, Christopher, on Monday we had politicians saying that while they may have known about it in advance, they, they don't get in involved in these police operational decisions. Uh, is there buck passing going on? Because ultimately a politician could have said no to that. It's very unlikely. There was only one politician that probably would have said no, apart from the Prime Minister, it would have been the Home Secretary. And the Home Secretary um, believes that certainly Section 7 of the uh, Terrorism Act uh, would cover anything like this. It would cover the protection of society. If you, if you start dating, let's say from 9-11, when by and large as a public, we said, look, just protect us, will you? Just get on and do anything you find necessary to do. And then the, the unease started with people saying, well, there's this place on the end of Cuba called Guantanamo. Uh, people have been lifted, MI6, MI5. Everybody's involved in this. Still, no public outcry. And this is something at the moment that you... Uh, uh, what happened at Heathrow 
nobody is making a big fuss about it excepting people you would expect to. And I think still the public may feel uneasy, but still the public says, well, you know, the purpose of doing this is to stop a terrorist act. Confusing the, the circumstances uh, of the arrest at all. It wasn't arrested, uh, uh, detaining. D- detention. Um, um, Paul Rogers... Is there a, a, a case to be made here that actually the grown-up way to look at this is uh, the Guardian and its journalists and the people around them have been doing their job and, and here the security services have done their job? Well, you could certainly do it that way. And I think one of the reasons why there's been a lot in the media about this, this particular incident is a lot of journalists actually feel very uneasy, more so than the general public, because in a sense they're rather at the sharp end. If you stand back a little bit from it, I think one tends to see this view expressed that, okay, we're we're checking emails, we're checking phone messages and all the rest. We can intervene, we can listen in. But if you're doing nothing wrong, it doesn't really matter. Nothing to worry about. The problem is that there have been so many instances where authorities, uh, police and others have actually been behaving in a completely wrong way uh, that people actually don't have sufficient tra- uh, trust in authority. You, you look at the apparent spying on the family of the murder Stephen Lawrence when that family was trying to get justice for what had happened. That, I think, is the problem, that this is coming together and really facing down this idea that, well, if you've got nothing to worry about, you're not doing anything wrong, there, then what's the concern? People are worried because it looks like there are too many incidents where security personnel, police and others, actually stretch the rules really beyond what is acceptable. Christopher, how does this look to the rest of the world? Because, of course, the Guardian says it, it, it's going to continue pursuing the Snowden stories and it can do it much more effectively in America that this kind of thing can't be done to it there. Is that the case? Yeah, I mean, uh, the uh, electronic media, electronic instruments, means you can pursue it whatever you like and somebody, somebody can tip you off now, whoever you are. There's a, I mean, it's a fascinating uh, thought, though. Just supposing that not necessarily... Uh, David Miranda, but somebody like that had been picked up, let's say, in Moscow airport, in the present state of the climate of, of relations with Moscow. And he'd been detained. British Foreign Secretary would have called in the the, uh, the, the Russian ambassador, uh, the, the perm rep at the United Nations would have been told to raise it at the United Nations. This would have been a, uh, an intrusion into human rights. It happens to us it's a different story altogether. And I think that is, is, is not that it's disturbing, but I think it's a point to remember. And it's interesting, uh, Russian officials did, uh, did, did comment rather critically yesterday on it. And, of course, the, the Snowden affair has further chilled relations between the US and Russia uh, because Russia has granted asylum to the intelligence leaker Edward Snowden, who was the source of these, these stories. Uh, Barack Obama has now cancelled a meeting with Vladimir Putin because of this. Um, he, he will still attend the G20 economic talks in St. Petersburg, but he's not going to meet Vladimir Putin. Well, he uh, says so at the moment. It, uh, that's what he's saying at the moment. Um, Paul Rogers, these countries have been... Tension has been growing. Has this made things worse, or is, is this about public show for domestic consumption? It has made things a little bit worse, but it is also about public show. From Russia's perspective, it is still really... Um, it's still cross in a way, if you can describe a country as being cross, by the situation when the Soviet Union collapsed. And in the 1990s, the Russians embraced uh, really turbo-capitalism, you might say, but they went hugely downhill, and there was a feeling that Russia had really lost its status as a superpower. 
Now, they've turned that around partly because they have so much oil and gas, so the economy is not as bad as it was, but partly because Putin plays to this Russian desire to be seen once again as a superpower. And he plays this up very readily. And although it's becoming almost a more autocratic regime, he has a lot of popularity. In other words, he's restoring Russia to its perceived preeminence. And this is why it's actually quite difficult for other countries to handle, particularly the Americans. So, Christopher, if it's a, a, a pseudo-Cold War, could, could that accidentally become a real Cold War? Um, I don't think it can become a real Cold War. But certain things that you want to happen, it makes it harder to happen. Take what was happening this week. Um, the, um, the apparent gas attack or nerve agent attack in Syria. Who was the first country on the Security Council of the United Nations on uh, Wednesday to block uh, a progress towards inspection? It was Russia. China will support them. So you're not going to get any leeway in that. If you want to go and talk about what's happening in Iran, who is going to block it at the UN? Russia. And so there's that frustration, I think, more than anything else. I think one of the interesting test cases will be on a very big issue. And so the United States and Russia are supposed to be getting together on a new nuclear arms control treaty. Now, these things normally take ages to get get together, a couple of years, maybe three or four years, uh, and then they have to be ratified. But that will be, I think, the real test case of the true relationship. And if you remember, arms control treaties, uh, quite often when they're signed, to tell you what the state of the relationship is at the time of signing, and they don't tell you what the state of relationship was to make the treaty mm. treaty come true. Paul Rogers, do you, do you think that this could stand in the way of, of that new treaty? Uh, it could possibly. Uh, it's very difficult to call this because the Russians are particularly concerned about their status stemming in part from the possession of strategic and tactical nuclear weapons. The hope is that, the, if you like, the professionals will ensure that this goes through. One of the fairly useful things at present is in terms of personality interaction. John Kerry as U.S. Secretary of State and Sergei Lavrov as the uh, Russian Foreign Minister get on quite well personally. And I think that's actually quite important, possibly in relation to any negotiations over Iran, and even possibly in relation to Syria. Uh, but these are tricky times, and uh, Putin certainly plays up very much to the home audience and is determined to play tough in the longer term. One hopes very much that it won't interfere with these particular arms control negotiations, though. Uh, Christopher, if there is a, a new arms control agreement, could, could that have implications for the UK and Trident? I think, really, I think only in the discussion. Uh, uh, the United Kingdom has got to make a decision after the next election, so after 2015, on the future of uh, of the Trident missile system in, in Vanguard submarines, whether to renew it as it stands or to come up with another system or a modified version. Um, the uh, Both Labour and Conservative fundamentally say, yeah, let's let's go for something new. Uh, the Liberals are saying, well, you know, maybe another, another version of it. In fact, if you come up with another version of it, you may be... Uh, you, you may be sort of uh, breaking the existing arms control treaties. I think it's a very interesting thing is that the, if the British want to reduce the, uh, the amount of uh, nuclear warheads that they hold, um, they, they could put it into the mix of a, of a Russian-American arms control treaty. But it's fascinating. All these big arms control treaties, right the way through the world, 
they're actually bilateral treaties for the Russians and the Americans, and we actually have to get to bolt on to whatever they've decided. And and this is a question people, will, uh, Paul Rogers, people will look at um, the, the world still revolving around whether Russia and the US can can reach agreement and go. Well, actually, how long can 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 that relationship be the axis for? Well, that's one what one really doubts. I mean, their numbers are down. I mean, it's extraordinary. Thirty years ago, we had sixty six thousand deployed nuclear weapons worldwide. It's down to well under ten thousand realistically now. But you do have the major problem of bit-by-bit proliferation. Uh, Pakistan, India, Israel, of course, North Korea, possibility of Iran. And this is why you get some of the people who you would have described as the nuclear hawks of the Cold War era now saying we've got to look seriously at the possibility of of moving eventually to a post-nuclear world. Now, quite important to that, obviously, the two big players, the Americans and the Russians, but it's a much more worldwide phenomenon and there are no really serious negotiations at present about the idea of a nuclear weapons convention. We've got a long way to go on that and, and many people feel that that should be considered more seriously given the risks of proliferation over the next two decades. Still ahead, why climate change is as big a threat to Britain's security as terrorism and military books. What have you been reading this summer? Before that, an Egyptian court has ordered the release on bail of former President Hosni Mubarak in a corruption case. He was sentenced to life last year, but a retrial was later ordered after his appeal was upheld. The 85-year-old does still face charges of complicity in the killing of protesters during the uprising that forced him from power in 2011. Well, still with us are defence analyst Christopher Lee and Professor Paul Rogers from the University of Bradford. Christopher, how uh, important and symbolic is this order to release Mubarak? Uh, If you're a Morsi supporter, um, it's pretty hard to sort of figure it out, actually. And, of course, the irony is the people against Morsi... Excuse me. Um, They were the people uh, who uh, were fighting to get Mubarak, I mean, even even worse than just imprisoned. The court... The courts have actually said that until there is an appeal case or whatever, the next stage, he has served enough of his time. He's gone into house arrest. Now, there's something else that we don't know, and that's what other people will be talking about in Cairo today. What about about his sons? Uh, What happens to them? Or are we tacitly, tacitly going back with the military to the old ways and the old days? That's unlikely because there are too many people on the streets. We've actually seen what's happened. But it's not at all insignificant that Mubarak is out of the clangour and he's into his own home. Paul, Paul Rogers, as, as, as Christopher says, uh, M- M- Mubarak uh, out of prison, um, uh, Mohamed Morsi, uh, first democratic elected uh, president removed from power. It, it's easy to look at it and go, well, the, the, the whole uprising and, and revel- Velvet Revolution of 2011 has been reversed. Oh, to some extent, yes. And I mean, it, Morsi hasn't just been removed from power. He is in detention, and many of the senior officers of the Muslim Brotherhood are in detention. More than that, there are thousands of Muslim Brotherhood officials who've been in municipalities up and down Egypt who've basically been removed from their jobs. So it's quite a major purge of the Brotherhood. The only reason I think why it is not being seen as a return to the old days is that the move against the Muslim Brotherhood did have a lot of public support and the armed forces had the support to stage what amounted to a coup because the government, ha- the government of the Muslim Brotherhood hadn't been 
insufficiently inclusive and also failed economically. But I think you're going to find, while many people want the stability that the military is imposing, there's going to be a, a growing unease, even among the people who wanted uh, the military to take over, about what is happening and the fear of a return to the previous era, where although Mubarak was very much the, the sort of leader, the figurehead, many of the shots were really called by the armed forces with all their economic interests uh, and power within Egypt. I think there's another thing we've got to remember with all uh, rebellions or transitions of government, whether in dictatorship form to another or whatever. Public needs to know that it's got an independent judiciary. And everything that happens after uh, a revolution, including, for example, the release of Mubarak, uh, people have got to be satisfied that the judiciary were doing this independently and they weren't getting a telephone call from the army saying, oh, by the way, let him out and let him home. He's normal and he's not very well. Um, and so that becomes very important. The independent judiciary is the one thing we all ought to have over our desks looking at, has it got it, because it's a guideline. Uh, Paul Rogers, there's also this question, you know, Washington gives uh, e Egypt um, million, uh, hundreds of millions of pounds uh, each year. Um, they're talking about whether or not to cut that, but of course if you cut that you, you, you cut your influence, don't you? You cut your influence, but frankly the influence of Washington and indeed the European capitals is now pretty minimal. I mean, the big player in terms of propping up the, the army the regime in Egypt currently is actually Saudi Arabia, which pumped several billions of dollars into the Egyptian economy in the last few weeks. So have they, have they lost the influence altogether? Should they just cut and run? They haven't lost the influence altogether, but it is much diminished. Uh, and the Saudis are in the major players. They like what the military has done. They're very uneasy about the Muslim Brotherhood, which is essentially at root, at least a partially democratic outlook body. And the Syria, the Saudis really are now the, the big players in terms of support for the Egyptian regime. The, the money that the Americans were giving, in fact, used to go or went really to the military because the military run everything. And we're talking about sort of eight billions or whatever. There was a meeting of the Gulf Security Council uh, about three weeks ago. The Saudis pushed it and said, listen, if it, the, we will give them 8.3, similar figure, and that should support... Uh, the, the new uh, quasi-regime. Uh, now, here is the point about influence. Just the biggest important thing, the most important thing in the Middle East is not uh, the, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, it's not Syria, it's not Iran, it's not Egypt, it is oil. And the protection of the oil routes is, is the thing that can change entirely world economies. If you want to go through the Suez Canal at the moment... You get nine, you've got to give nine days' notice. And you want to get through a transit very quickly. That's important. This is a, sounds very small. If the Americans want to do it because they've been giving all this money, they can go through with 24 hours' notice. And it's just a question of clearing other people out of the way or, 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 or rescheduling. If there's something going on down in the Gulf and you want to get assets down through the canal very quickly, it's good to have influence with the one people that control the ca canal. Egyptians. History tells us the importance of that. Christopher, thank you. This is BFBS. Sit rep. Climate change is as big a threat to Britain's security and economy as terrorism and cyber attacks. That claim comes from a senior military commander who was appointed as William Hague's climate change envoy earlier this year. Rear Admiral Neil Morissetti says climate change is a truly global threat and action is needed urgently. Well, Kate Jabot has been speaking to him and asked him why he believes climate change is such a threat and what it means for security. Kate, 
In the 21st century, we face a lot of threats to um, global stability and prosperity. Some are traditional and some non-traditional. Amongst the non-traditional is the impact of a changing climate, both in the long-term trends and the extreme weather events we've been seeing this decade. Um, Particularly, they pose a risk to economic resilience and national security. Now, that's not to say that climate change in itself is likely to be a direct cause of conflict, nor is it just the physical changes. But if you look at the effects of the second and third order consequences, loss of land, loss of livelihood, and how people react to that, it acts as what's best described as a stress multiplier. A stress multiplier in those parts of the world where there's already food shortages, water shortages, health problems, demographic challenges, parts of the world where we've seen conflict in the past, and we'll probably see it again either between countries or within countries, uh, often because the governments don't have the capacity and resilience to, um, to deal with the stresses that society faces. And this is adding to their problems. Um, it was highlighted in uh, Defence Concepts and Doctrine Centre's Global Strategic Trends 2010 when they talked about climate change as a ring road issue that will affect all of us. And have you identified which areas of the world are most at risk and which areas they might affect as a result? Well... There's a belt that runs north and south of the equator through Americas, uh, Africa, Middle East, Indian subcontinent and on into Asia. And that's the area of greatest global stress and it's the area where probably the greatest effects of climate change will be seen in the short term. Whether it be rising temperatures, rising sea levels, increased acidity in the ocean, all of which can affect not only where people live but also what they can do in the sense of agriculture or fishing and and stocks in that sense. But the impact, because we live in a globalised world, will be felt by all of us. Um, A couple of examples of that. The floods in Thailand in 2011, not only did it affect Thailand, not only did it affect rice shields, but because companies like Honda and Toyota have parts manufactured in Thailand to assemble in other countries, it had a knock-on effect to the United Kingdom. In Swindon, the Honda factory went on to a three-day working week because they were short of parts. And at the same time, there was a shortage of microchips for computers um, in, in places as far afield as Poland and Orange County, California. Uh, perhaps another example is 2010, a very hot summer in Russia. Wheat yields were down. Uh, they kept much of the wheat that was grown in Russia. At the same time, because of wet climate in Canada and, and and Australia, their crops were down. The net effect of that was that the price of wheat went up, the price of bread went up, and that was one, not the only, but one of the contributing factors to the Arab Spring and the riots in the markets in Tunisia. Uh, Adding to instability in a region where we in Europe um, get oil and gas from, um, which meant volatility in prices, which started to impact on our economic growth as well. What do you think is the single biggest threat to the UK? Is it possible to say? I don't think it's possible to say there's one particular threat, but I think there, the, the challenge we face is that because we live in this globalised world, events thousands of miles away will impact on us as much as they do on the people who are, who are directly affected. And perhaps we have a perception that climate change is something that, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen in a, a long time in the future, um, and a bit of global warming and a drier climate in the UK would be better than what we get often. But the reality is, it's here today, and it's an issue we have to face, along with all the other threats and challenges that we face to uh, economic prosperity, uh, growth, and, and our national security. Almost impossible to plan for. What is the military doing, and what should it be doing? I think the military is doing a lot, actually, not just in this country, but across around the world. Um, it's looking at it like any other threat. It's trying to do its analysis of what this threat means to our national interests, and we recognise that our borders or our interests spread far wider than just our physical borders. Um, it's looking at how it works with other government departments to try and reduce some of those risks. Um, the military in this country, as in America and elsewhere, are looking at see what it means for its missions and tasks. 
Um, often we find the military being involved in humanitarian assistance and disaster relief um, after extreme weather events. If we're going to see more extreme weather events and more intense ones, we need to be prepared for that. We may be called upon to do that. Also, and this was reflected in our Strategic Defence and Security Review in 2010 and the Americans in their Quadrennial Defence Review in the same year, a recognition that the military will be involved more in conflict prevention. Only a small part, but a part playing to help build capacity and resilience in those countries that have the difficulties in meeting some of these, these challenges. Um, and that means we've got to work with new actors, different people, whether from within government or from, from the wider non-government organisations, and that's a preparation. This issue uh, was recently discussed by G8 leaders. Do you feel they're taking it as seriously as they should? Yes, I think they're very much. Um, I chaired a group of interested G8 countries um, following the G8 foreign ministers meeting at which um, William Hague, the foreign secretary, directed that um, some work should be done to understand where those hotspots and vulnerabilities are around the world and what we can do together to be more effective in, in addressing that and reducing the risks um, that those pose, not only to the countries affected, but also to ourselves as the interested G8 countries. And there was unanimous agreement this is something that we needed to do, we could do better if we work closer together, if we shared our lessons learnt and our best practice. And that work is, will be taken forward. Rear Admiral Neil Morissetti talking to Kate Chabot. Uh, Professor Paul Rogers, uh, is it possible to be reading too much into the fact that it's a British climate change envoy, but uh, climate envoy, but he's, he works to the foreign secretary uh, and also he's a military man? I think as a military man, it's very good news. I mean, I lecture quite often at defence colleges, Shrivenham, Seaford House and elsewhere. And what I find repeatedly is that if you're looking at long term risks like climate change, military audiences get it. Uh, they tend to think long term and I think it's actually very good that somebody such as Admiral Morissetti has taken up this role. As to the Foreign Office, yes, I mean what we have to move towards is actually preventing climate change getting worse, which means we've got to go to ultra low carbon economies and by we, we I mean you know, the world community but particularly the, the major industrialised countries and essentially it's also got to be very much national policy but in, it's got to be cooperative across the world, which is why I think it is right that the Foreign Office does have a major role on this. And I think, in a sense, it, it illustrates just how important it is. You probably get a slightly better hearing if you're doing it from a military perspective. I mean, the, 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 one of the ways you see this form itself is, is, is mass migration, and that is, that, that is going to be a challenge for, for, for governments and security, isn't it? Absolutely, because, I mean, people will be desperate to move, and there's pretty good evidence now that climate change is asymmetric. It affects some parts of the world more than others, as Admiral Morissetti just said, and also it's accelerating. And many of the areas of the subtropics uh, are actually going to be very badly affected. And in fact, one of the worst zones is probably going to be the whole of the Middle East through to the Mediterranean basin. Now, if you get a real decline in the carrying capacity of the croplands to support human populations, the inevitable result is people are going to be desperate to move. And in a globalised world, you can't stop that, which is why it's so much more important that we actually have to try and prevent it becoming the kind of problem that it will otherwise be in 20 or so years. We're going to be talking about this again and again, but for uh, your thoughts on that, thanks again, Paul Rogers. Now, before we go, it is that time of year when some of us like to do a little more reading than usual. There are plenty of tomes around with a military connection. Uh, we'll come to port back to Paul in a moment, Chris for recommendations from you today? Well, in it, next year, 2014, is the big anniversary of the First World War. And um, I, first thing that happened, I thought to myself, look, forget the army. I mean, everybody does, does trench stuff, right? Uh, what about navy? 
what about Jutland? What about uh, the way naval warfare uh, developed and post-Fisher? So um, I'm uh, reading uh, really about Jutland, why we had to contain the, uh, the German high seas fleet. Um, and it's not a question of who won because nobody probably did win that thing. So it's very important, the, the, the naval warfare. But, you know, I've also got bang on back to, to, um, to literature, to fiction. All Quiet on the Western Front, I've been rereading that. Um, I've been rereading uh, the script of one of the most remarkable plays of the First World War, Journey's End, by Arif um, Sheriff. Um, and then poetry, so soon, is the most remarkable thing when, the de- when, the, when death stands at the bottom of the bed, looks at this poor sergeant and says... I choose him. I remember those well from my GCSEs. Briefly, Paul, uh, any good books on your summer reading list? I'm afraid it's the same theme uh, as, as Christopher's. I'm reading David Stevenson's classic book, 1914-1918, 600 pages, but incredible detail. Um, a shorter book, much more glossily illustrated, is H.P. Wilmot's one on World War One, which is very good because it's comprehensive. It breaks it up into bites, but it looks as much as the Balkans and Western Russia and the home front uh, as, as um, the Western front. And I find it a very interesting book for that. Okay, Professor Paul Rogers, thank you for uh, your recommendations on reading and your thoughts on that. Christopher, thank you for your thoughts. If you want to share your reading recommendations uh, with other SITREP listeners, then you can join us on Twitter. Tweet at BFBS SITREP. You can also listen again to this week's programme through our website, bfbs.com slash SITREP. But that is it for this week. Thanks again to Professor Paul Rogers and our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Kate, Bo will be back same time, same place next week. I'll see you around. Bye-bye.